It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I noticed, I think, originally a dull ache. It's not the dramatic start that, you know, it might have been, considering all that's happened since. So very, just kind of dull and heavy, in my right forearm. That's Catherine Charlwood. She works at the University of Exeter in England and lives in Wales. Catherine noticed the dull ache when she was at school. She was just 14 years old. This would have been in some ways expected because I was at music school and I was now playing my clarinet more than I could when I was at home and all of the weight rests on the right thumb. So... Hence, the right forearm being the thing that felt tired and heavy, not that surprising. I guess my concern was peaked when my arm actually swelled up. At that point, Catherine just tried to carry on with her life as normal, just with a little bit more caution. I mean, it wasn't acute pain. It wasn't the same as sort of like, I've broken my leg and I'm now screaming and can't move. But it was very noticeable and an obvious part of my daily experience. To her doctors, Catherine's symptoms didn't seem like anything particularly worrying. They all expected her to make a full recovery. Myself, my family, my teachers are all thinking, well, this is going to be over soon. You know, what, six weeks, 12 weeks, this will be over. And that time frame just (laughs) elapsed without really any improvement. The swelling didn't go away. Two decades later... Catherine is still living with that pain, a chronic pain that has no obvious cause. It's a condition that's difficult to understand, even for Catherine. I found a whole like A4 sheet of me trying to explain what was happening to me, to me. And just, I mean, that teenager tried so hard, tried so hard to figure it out and just couldn't do it. Today, she still struggles to put how her body feels into words. At its lowest, it's still just that kind of dull, aching feeling in my right forearm. It can get sharper. It can get a lot sharper. It can feel like it's actually outside of your body. So sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes I can point to where it hurts and it's the air near to my arm, but it's not my arm. And that's very unsettling because it doesn't make rational sense either. I mean, the air, what on earth do I do about that? Chronic, unexplainable pain affects around a third of the world's population. And around 10% of those people living with the long-term pain have a disabling form of it, which means that it interferes with and restricts how they live their lives. That makes chronic pain the most common cause of disability in the world. It's a burden on those who have to live with it, and the pain also has impacts on wider society too, not least in the implications for costs around treatments, caregiving, and lost labour. 
But tackling this problem hasn't proven easy. Scientists know very little about how long-term pain is caused, why it persists, and therefore how it might be treated or managed. And that's exactly why they're on a renewed hunt for answers. This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, the challenge to understand chronic pain. Pain is basically the flow of electrical signals from one part of the body up to the brain. Gilad Amit is The Economist science correspondent, and he's been looking into the issue of long-term pain for us. So if you touch something hot, or if you feel too much pressure on a finger, for instance, then electrical charge flows from that part of the body up to the brain, where the brain interprets that signal as pain. And pain is something unpleasant because the the thing that's initiated the electrical signal is possibly something dangerous or noxious in your environment. So what's the purpose of pain? It's a very good question. It's a very deep question. Um, Ultimately, it's a benefit to us because pain is what keeps us safe. Pain is a warning. If we experience pain when we interact with something in the real world, then that's a sign that we should maybe avoid interacting with it again. So there are good evolutionary reasons for us to have evolved the ability to experience short-lived pain. And short-lived is the key word there, isn't it? But you've been writing about chronic pain, which is pain that lasts for longer than a certain amount of time. Just give us the background to that. What's it useful for? And then when does it become problematic? So the technical term for chronic pain is maladaptive. In other words, we've evolved it even though it doesn't do us any good. It only does us harm. Acute pain is useful, and chronic pain, which is pain that persists for longer than, some define it as three months, some define it as six months, pain that goes on has no real evolutionary advantage. All sorts of different conditions fall under the umbrella of chronic pain. Long COVID is associated with chronic pain. You have irritable bowel syndrome, shingles, arthritis. These are all conditions that have this long-term pain that does not go away and that has no good reason to exist. And this also includes things like long-term back pain or other muscle pains that just don't go away for months and months and months on end. I mean, pain itself has always been thought of as a symptom of some other health problem. But as we heard from Catherine in the introduction, chronic pain seems to be a condition in its own right and doesn't always have an underlying physiological problem, does it? So how do we think about that in the sort of ways of thinking about pain. So it's helpful to divide chronic pain up into three categories. This is how the International Association for the Study of Pain divides it up. And these terms are quite technical. There's nociceptive pain, which is basically when you have an injury at some site in your body and the signal is then carried along healthy nerves up to your brain. There's neuropathic pain, which is when the nerves themselves are damaged. And then there is this newer, much more mysterious category of nociplastic pain, which is when there is no site of injury, the nerves are healthy, but the body still experiences pain. So nociplastic pain is the newest of the definitions and seems entirely mysterious because, as you say, there's no site of injury, there's no nerve damage. It's a complete mystery. It's a real terra incognita that lives between the two better known territories of pain, And it's estimated that about a billion people live on this undiscovered continent. And Catherine Charlwood, who we heard from earlier, is one of them. 
Catherine is, of course, one of those people you spoke to for this episode. And in fact, this whole mystery of what nociplastic pain might be and the treatments that might be useful for it, or at least better ways to understand it, is what you've been looking at for this week's show. That's right. It's this big, mysterious area of pain that affects so many people and where there are so many questions and very few good answers. Okay, Gilad, take it away. To understand how nociplastic pain, this mysterious, unexplained form of chronic pain, affects people, let's return to Catherine Charlwood. Catherine was a 14-year-old clarinet player at music school when she first noticed swelling in her forearm. She told me what the doctors initially thought was wrong. It's not uncommon, I would say, among musicians and people working to be musicians to have repetitive strain injury. So that was the initial thing, you know, oh, okay, well, so it looks like you've overdone it. The muscles are strained, so they've swollen and it's telling you to stop. So, okay, we're going to reduce your practice hours for the moment while you rest and heal up. Catherine tried everything she could to treat her pain. We tried just different things, you know, like maybe icing it will help, maybe heat therapies will help. I can definitely remember having some early physio that just kept my wrist I've had acupuncture. It was an experience. In my hand, I had some ibuprofen just to take the edge off. Cream that has the all the different drugs, anti-epilepsy, antidepressants. Maybe it's this. Let's try this. Maybe it's this. Let's try this. Well, I just, I just want to get better. I don't think I tried anything like that wacky. In fairness, it was actually the medical route that seemed the most invasive and torturous, and actually, as it transpired, had no real ameliorating effect at all. When you say the medical route, uh, do you mean surgical interventions? What sort of procedures did you go through? So the first few years, there was no sense it was a pain condition. You know, my arm had swelled up. There was a physical injury to my arm, and that was what the problem was. So the first surgery I had was this idea that maybe somehow the muscle was in the wrong place or the kind of sheeting covering it was in the wrong place. And if we could reduce that friction, that tension, maybe that would clear up the pain. And that didn't it didn't make it worse, but it didn't make it better. So that hadn't worked, but everyone was still convinced it was a physical injury. I mean, including me, because at this point, no one's mentioned pain conditions or that's not a thing in my world. I don't know about that yet. And so the next idea was, okay, well, so if it's pain, it's related to nerves. And both times that they did the actual kind of opening up my arm, what they thought they were going to see there, they clearly didn't see there because that wasn't what was happening. And unfortunately, if you do surgery on nerves without needing to, there is every chance that you can upset them. And yeah, that kind of left me with a bit of another problem. And was that more pain, a different type of pain? Different type, yeah. So we hadn't solved what I'd gone in with. And then from that surgery, every now and again, it's like electricity sort of crackles down the scar or that someone's giving you an electric shock. I'd say that that feels more acute at the time it's happening than chronic because you really just can't ignore it. Whereas there are other times when I will, I'll literally speak over my pain as if I'm telling off a child and I can do that with my normal pain, but not with the kind of electrical one. Okay. And so you're a young woman at this point, you've had these surgeries. This one has made things worse. You're still exploring other options. Yeah. So second surgery didn't work. Surgeon quite cross because, you know, it wasn't successful. It wasn't what we thought it was. He wasn't able to fix me. And orthopaedic surgeons are fixers. Was he cross at you? Yeah. 
because you hadn't complied with his skill? I gave up trying to understand him, to be honest. We didn't get on, I could say that much. But I think the last time I saw him, he wanted one last ultrasound to try and see what was going on. That ultrasound, for whatever reason, the equipment didn't work properly or something. So when my surgeon finally got those images through, they were blurry and he couldn't read them properly. And the last thing I remember him saying to me before I went and there was no point in seeing each other again, there was nothing to do. He said, this is almost as annoying for you as it is for me. Wow. And I just, I was so angry I couldn't speak for a week and I really struggled to process it. And when was it that you started receiving treatment for pain as a primary condition and not just as a symptom of something underlying. I eventually got referred to rheumatology and that was the first time that somebody sort of sat me down and said, you know, this isn't a physical injury, like you have a pain condition and what you need is to be referred to the pain clinic and we can try, you know, I'm going to take this in hand and I'm going to try different approaches. We're going to try different drugs we're going to try CBT and see if there's, you know, something we can unlock through talking therapy that's not going well for you. We're going to refer you to pain management and they will do these steroid injections. But it is a pain condition and that means this isn't going anywhere. So it was kind of, in a way, the best and worst appointment because it was devastating news. And he really was like, you're not going to play the clarinet again. And whatever you need to do, whatever process you need to go through to understand that, I need you to go through it. And that was actually very helpful advice in terms of me getting to a different place. It must be so difficult navigating a world full of people who don't understand what it's like to experience pain the same way you do. It's got easier because I'm more detached from this desperation for other people to have the quote-unquote right reaction to what I'm saying because my expectations are different now. And, you know, for a long time, especially being young, having this happen, consequently being very depressed. I mean, let's face it, lots of people with chronic pain or especially in that onset before you're in any way used to it or have any perspective, you're just plunged into a state of complete despair I mean, I kind of, I wrote my whole life off because not just was I not going to be a musician and not carry out this grand plan that I probably should have never invented in the first place, but also, like, how was I ever going to have a meaningful relationship with anybody because I was now so burdensome and, you know, I was just a walking sad story and who wanted that in their lives? So I think it's really, it's easy to forget how amplified it is because it sounds like it's part of your experience, but it inevitably taints your whole experience. And did you ever get to a point where you felt like you could accept that you were living with this pain? I really struggled with being asked to accept it because in my own head, I associated acceptance with real negativity. You know, any conduit to hope that there was would be shut down by saying, I accept the fact that I am never going to play again and that this is my life. But that was, I mean, in fairness, that was what I ultimately needed to do. It just took me a very, very, very long time to do it. (laughs) Because there's only so long you can fight and use that energy to go, well, I'm hoping for a different outcome. 
and people with the best intentions in the world want it to go away for you and they flood you with their notions of how you can be made better and if what you're trying to do is cope with the fact that you know that's not happening there isn't something externally I can go look that is the problem we both can see it we both can access that and agree that is the problem that doesn't exist for me so I really sometimes need people to just hear my statement and just go okay yeah Living with nociplastic pain doesn't just bring physical discomfort. There are all sorts of psychological stresses as well. And these are made worse by the fact that nociplastic pain is still very poorly understood. It's very little known outside of those who specialize in pain research. So I wanted to find out what those at the cutting edge know about it. I was just on a panel that revised the definition of pain and published this about a year or so ago. Francis Keefe is the director of the Pain Prevention and Treatment Research Program at Duke University, and he's the former editor of the medical journal Pain. So what that says is you can't simply determine someone's having pain by looking at you know what's going on in the nerve fibers that are sending pain signals to the brain and so on, that you need to consider how the person's psychological, social environment, the way they're thinking about the pain, their mood, the context that they're in, you know, be it a doctor's office or at home, you need to understand that that all goes into what people are reporting about their pain. Francis and his colleagues describe pain as a biopsychosocial phenomenon. Now, Alok and I discussed the bio bit earlier. When you experience pain, receptors all over the body send a message up the spinal cord to the brain to tell it to take action. Something bad is happening. That's what happens when you touch something hot. The acute pain tells your brain to move the finger out of harm's way. Now, the psychosocial bit, the impact that a person's thoughts and the environment they're in can have on the pain they experience, is much less well understood. But just as significant. Francis walked me through an example. So if you did an imaging study, a brain imaging study, and even delivering a simple stimulus, let's say we're squeezing your finger while you're in the imaging device, we'll see lots of different areas in your brain light up. Obviously a sensory area, but we'll see areas related to your thoughts, your feelings. All these areas get very, very active. And one of the most interesting areas is in the frontal part of the brain, that's actually involved in pain control. So under certain circumstances, maybe you're in this experiment where you're getting your finger squeezed, maybe you're very, very anxious about you know, how much pain are they going to produce here with their squeeze, then what that pain control center would do is not be as effective in blocking pain. So that pain control center of your brain actually sends signals down to the spinal cord that can actually block the amount of pain that you are feeling or can not block it and allow any signals to come through and be perceived. So if you're very anxious, that blocking could be impaired. So the pathway, I think, traditionally has been just thought this very simple one-way pathway from the periphery, from an area that might be hurt or damaged, up to the brain, we now know it's much more dynamic and that what goes on in the brain in turn can affect 
whether that pathway is more or less active. Catherine seemed to have no such initial stimulus, though, so something else must have been happening in her central nervous system. A lot of that has been thought to be due to abnormal neural firing in the central nervous system itself. So I remember one of the early studies done with uh, an individual who had a limb amputated. He would have spontaneous increases in pain. You know, when is your pain stable? When is it really going high? And what they found is during those spikes in pain, there was more activity in the spinal cord itself. And that activity, he didn't have a hand, but he could tell you exactly where the pain in the phantom hand was. But obviously the hand wasn't there. But what was happening when he experienced that is this abnormal firing. And you can imagine having, you know, not having a limb that, you know, you, you probably went through an injury that was very painful. You had a surgery and recovery from that was very painful. Your nervous system has been bombarded by pain signals for probably quite some time. And that sets up a process of events in the spinal cord and even in the brain it's almost like pain memories that somehow get activated and are associated with reports of increased pain. This sensitization of the nervous system can happen when sustained pain signals permanently change the way a nerve transmits electricity, the ion channels through which the charge flows to get to the brain. Over time, this sensitization can make even mild sensations indistinguishable from painful ones. But there are many other theories as to what happens in the bodies of those with nociplastic pain. Some have suggested endorphins, the body's natural painkillers, are less readily manufactured. And others have hypothesized that antibodies, which patrol the bloodstream to identify and draw attention to pathogens, could also mistakenly attack a patient's nerves. And if we remember that pain is this biopsychosocial phenomenon, then being tired, and ignored and frustrated as a result of being in pain can also make pain worse. The tendency to focus on pain and become preoccupied with pain, to think about your own ability to cope with pain is not that effective, to worry about the future. These things are also associated with increased likelihood of developing these kinds of conditions. Also think about the environments that many folks live in. There are often environments where there's many stressors, there can be exposure to violence, family disruption, and those sorts of things that contribute to the ability to manage the pain. So it seems to be a variety of factors that play in. All of that means that there could never be a single pill to ease either Catherine's symptoms or those of someone else with nociplastic pain. So, what can actually be done? We'll be back with Gilad in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder that our new subscription service, Economist Podcast Plus, begins next week. If you haven't already signed up to Economist Podcast Plus, or if you don't already have a subscription to The Economist, there's no better time than now. It's still just £2, dollars or euros to continue enjoying this podcast, as well as all the other specialist weekly shows and limited series that we make here at The Economist. Just Google Economist Podcasts to make the most of that deal. 
We're thrilled that so many of you have already signed up and are joining our Babbage community. And that's why we want you to get more involved in the show. So for the next few weeks, we want you to email us any burning questions you have about artificial intelligence. Are you worried that AI will affect your job? Do you want to know whether AI-powered self-driving cars will take over the streets? And whether that's something to look forward to or be sceptical about? How can we ensure that technology isn't misused by bad actors? Let us know what you want to know. And we'll endeavour to get the questions answered for you as we speak to the world's finest minds on the issue. To get in touch, email podcasts at economist.com and put Babbage in the subject line. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Coming up, Gilad will step out of the office and into one of London's major hospitals to investigate the next frontiers in treating chronic pain. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. We're here outside the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in central London, going to talk to Matt Evans, who works in the pain research team here. That's Gilad Ahmed, our science correspondent again. He'll pick up the story from here. One of the big problems when it comes to chronic pain is that there are very few treatments that work. And one of the reasons for that might be that the treatments are going to the wrong patients. And so better diagnoses, better ways of clustering patients could be really important in making sure that a medication that works gets to the patients it can work on and doesn't get discounted as a failure simply because it was prescribed wrongly. So we're not at this hospital to see how pain is treated. We're here to understand some of the different ways in which pain is defined. But before we get to the pain research center where I'll be poked and prodded in order to better understand my sensory responses, it's useful to take a look at how chronic pain is typically treated today. One of the best treatments for pain is opioids. Jan Follett was a pain researcher at Imperial College London and did studies at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. He's now starting a new role at the University of Exeter. Opioids go to very specific receptors that we have that modulate our internal systems, how we perceive pain. But we know from the opioid crisis, in, particularly in the US over the last years, what some of the severe limits in using opioids are. And if we're talking about chronic pain, and you'd be talking about taking these for, for long years, then you get into really dangerous territory. That's because opioids are highly addictive. The other two main classes of drugs that are given to treat chronic pain are anti-inflammatories and antidepressants. That last one might surprise you. Many patients with chronic pain might already have the feeling that they're not believed so if you give them antidepressants, they say, well, I, I don't have depression, I have pain. The reason behind it is that we assume or partly know that pain and depression share common neural pathways. So while we have discovered them as antidepressants and that's what they're named, 
In the same way, if we had earlier discovered how good they are for treating pain, they might now be called pain medications. And people might ask, why are you giving me pain medications for my depression? But these three classes of drugs target very specific mechanisms in the body, and they don't work for everyone. Treatments that we currently have are effective for some patients, but really just for some, and we have no way of predicting for whom they will work. That's why Jan and his team are interested in using quantitative sensory testing, or QST. Their main focus is on neuropathic pain. That's the type of pain where there's damage to the nerves, and the cause is usually known. This kind of pain is better understood than the nociplastic pain Catherine experiences. So the idea is that we try to capture in a very structured way how your nervous system reacts to certain well-defined stimuli. And that gives us a very specific profile for you that gives us an overview of how your sensory system is functioning. The idea is that each of these phenotypes will react differently to treatments. So by getting that profile, we have a better idea what kind of medication will work for you. And that's why I came to the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, to meet Jan's colleague, Matt Evans. Matt is a doctor at the hospital and a clinical lecturer at Imperial College London. So we're now in what seems like a fairly familiar scene. It's a doctor's sort of consulting room. There's a blue reclining chair to, to sit on. There's a computer, a sink, and I'm being invited to, to sit down at the seat near the computer. Matt explained exactly what that daunting-looking equipment would be used for. With the quantitative sensory testing, we're essentially looking at all sorts of sensations, from warm, cold, mechanical sensations, vibration and pressure. So we really look across the spectrum of sensory experiences and look at what people's threshold is for those. What we do with quantitative sensory testing is to compare your value to a whole cohort of people the same age as you, basically, and same sex as you, because those are two very important variables. QST involves various rounds of testing, using a device that heats up or cools down. So we're going to start with a thermal threshold, first of all. So I'll just get this one. This is our thermal probe. So if you uh, just have a feel of that there. This is sort of like a, like a shower head that has no holes at the front, just a plate that presumably heats up or cools down. Correct, okay. yeah. So In a number of different tests, I was asked to comment or click a button once I noticed a change. Cold. Warm. Cold. And Matt also tested a number of different stimuli on my hands. Uh, we then have a mechanical pain threshold, which again is not objectively painful. So, so this, is, this is a wooden box that says on the front in, it looks like it's burnt in these letters, <laughs> yes. uh, the pinprick. Yeah. Okay, very reassuring. And as you can see here, these are our pinpricks. Oh, right. Not quite as scary as it looks, I promise. I'll apply these with your eyes closed and you just need to tell me whether it feels blunt or sharp. Okay. Okay. Blunt. Borderline, mm. that one. Sharp, definitely sharp. And then the last one is pressure pain. So I've got this slightly odd looking device, but basically it's just a pressure sensor. So it tells me here how much pressure I'm applying through the, the end. And I'm going to apply it to your, uh, yeah. basically your thumb. And I'm just going to gradually apply more and more pressure. As I push in harder, again, comes back to that sharp, burning, stinging, pricking sensation. When it okay. starts to get that almost painful quality, then you say now. All of this prodding and probing that Matt did over the course of an hour is done to figure out what my nerves are doing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. 
That can then be used to classify people with neuropathic pain into different groups depending on their responses. So, how did my results turn out? All of your values at R at Z scores less than one, so very, very much within the exact middle that we would expect it. Okay. Now, I didn't come to the hospital just so that our producer, Jason, could watch me squirm every time Matt took a new torturous-looking tool out of his toolboxes. The really exciting thing is that QST is a method that's unlocking new treatment options and giving new life to those that already exist. There were really interesting new drug candidates that we're all really excited about, and many of them failed in clinical trials, partly because they were trying to treat all of neuropathic pain while they would have been only working for one of these subgroups. That's Jan Follett again. So what we're now trying to do is to go back to some of these drug candidates and show that they are really effective for these subgroups of patients. And there have been some successes using this approach. We had at least one successful trial a few years ago already that focused on sodium channel blockers. Sodium channels are those pathways that allow pain to get from the receptor up to the brain. Sodium channel blockers were for a long time something we really thought would help a lot of people with neuropathic pain because you do have a lot of sodium channels in your nerves and they can be altered. And we did a prospective trial with oxcarbazepin, one of these sodium channel blockers, and we did show that actually, yes, if we only go for one subgroup, then we can see efficacy. Jan's study is one of those rare moments of promise in a generally discouraging pain research field. But it also highlights the complexity of chronic pain, even within one comparatively well-understood pain type, neuropathic pain. It's currently uncertain whether techniques like QST will be useful for the mysterious nociplastic type of pain that Catherine Charlwood has. But that is something that's being investigated. And pain research is not just about repurposing old drugs. New types of therapies are being developed, targeting different biological systems in the hope of reducing pain. One avenue that's generating a lot of interest is the use of psychedelics, like psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms, to rewire the brain. But it should be said, there's a lot of evidence still to collect and many hurdles to overcome before these treatments will become available. For now, though, all of the people living with pain that I've spoken to as well as researchers and clinicians who specialize in this area, have emphasized the importance of managing pain, helping people find ways of reducing everyday discomfort, giving them the support they need, discouraging risky procedures that might make their problems worse, and not providing the false hope that a simple cure will be around the corner. Living with chronic pain is all about harnessing those psychological and social aspects of pain to make each day manageable. No two people will go about it the same way. Here's what Catherine Charlwood does. However much you think you're over it and all the rest of it, you're always kind of compensating for what you didn't do or what you can't do or what you couldn't do. So I do a lot of ballet. I do a lot of walking. I really like to feel like I have strong legs because my arm strength is very poor. So I think trying to stay fit and healthy in every other way that I can makes me feel more in control of my body and my health. And that compensates for the bit I know I can't control. I do find that mindfulness meditation can really help just because it's back to that idea of when you're trying to fight against it. And one of the great contradictions is that 
you and your pain are one, right? Like this mind and this body, it's all me. I don't actually get to divide it up. But there are times when I'm more on my game and feeling in control, I will actually try and divide it. And I call my chronic pain Bert because then it's separate and not me, has a different identity. And then it's easier to kind of wander around, like rubbing my arm for comfort and being like, okay, you know, we've got this. I know. I hear you. And you can kind of separate it out. But if you are feeling down, then you really need to feel complete. And I think mindfulness meditation is really good for that because rather than fighting yourself, you acknowledge what you're feeling. That sentiment is also reflected in Catherine's day job in dementia research. It's very similar to pain. You know, everybody's experience is individual and there are all of these things that affect the experience. Some things make it better, some things make it worse. And understanding those gives us a much broader picture of the condition of dementia than simply symptoms, a specific scientific fact. That's highly irrelevant if that person sat in front of you. What they want to do, what brings them joy is sailing and what they need is I don't know, funding and an accessible activity station so that they can go out on a boat and feel the wind on their face. Like, that is not really something a doctor prescribes out of their medical casket. But that might be what they want, right? So it's seeing people rather than patients and definitely looking back, you know, of course, with the power of hindsight, I would advise myself, do not go in for that surgery. But you make the best choices you can at the time And that's what you do. Catherine's also part of a research project that wants to improve a patient's pathway through the healthcare system, making sure that the interactions with doctors help and don't hinder their ability to live with pain. The work stream that I'm part of is the interpersonal work stream. So it's purely focusing on those factors of, as somebody in pain interacts with a clinician, what is it about their behaviour that can improve things or make things go radically wrong. And the same with partners. Because it is, I mean, my husband goes through a lot. I think anybody does if you live with someone who is constantly in pain. And that is a difficult thing to manage. And we don't really tend to consider those relationships, which can be really make or break on a day-to-day basis of your happiness, your ability to feel like you're really living... But that's nothing to do with whether or not you could prescribe me codeine. As I wrap up my investigation into unexplained chronic pain, I'm struck by how few good solutions exist. But better management and more empathy from doctors and from one another is an adult solution to what is an incredibly complex problem. Gilad, thank you for all of that. Chronic pain and particularly nociplastic pain It seems incredibly complicated and tangled. I mean, this might be a difficult question, but what did you take away from your sort of investigation into it? I was surprised by the scale of the problem of chronic pain in general and nociplastic pain in particular. I myself don't live with chronic pain. And so it was really an eye-opening experience to hear from people who do. One small bit of optimism that I think can be taken from the complexity of pain is that because there are so many things that contribute to pain, that gives us lots of potential ways of dampening it. 
pain doesn't just occur in the body, it also occurs in the brain. And because we're such social creatures, what occurs in our environment and with the people around us affects what happens in our brain. So there are biological, psychological and sociological solutions to not necessarily eliminate pain, but reduce it. For me, that's more than just a ray of hope, actually. The fact that there are many leads to trying to at least understand, categorize, find ways of describing these kinds of pain and bringing these people's stories and experiences into the research, all of that means potential leads, as you say. And it might take a long time before those leads become treatments, but it's something, right? And I suppose that mindset shift is also important for doctors as well as patients themselves to say that it's not always a cure that should be the primary goal. It's also about the experience that's happening, which is, again, now something else that comes through from the reporting, which is that trying to take control of people's understanding of their own pain is a step towards managing it. And perhaps that's as much as it can be done, but that's much more than was being done before. I mean, we live in a complex world. We all want simple solutions, and we would all like there to be a button in the doctor's office that can be pushed and will make pain go away. But these things are much more complicated, and we need to sort of make the small advances we can in the absence of a silver bullet that makes the whole problem go away. And there are lots of practical things that can be done, again, which won't eliminate pain completely, but might make it easier to live with. And one of the simplest things I found was that simply listening, taking people's pain seriously, not accusing them of making it up or of having an impossible condition, but taking people's pain into account when dealing with them. It's amazing how this isn't just a decent human thing to do, but it can actually help pain go down. Okay, Gilad, thank you very much for that. It's a very complex issue, but at least understanding the complexity is one step towards dealing with it, I guess. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alan. That's all from us. A quick reminder that Economist Podcast Plus begins next week on Tuesday, October the 24th. If you're already a long-time Economist subscriber or one of the many thousands who've signed up to take advantage of the half-price podcast subscription, thank you. We appreciate your support and we're delighted that you'll be joining us. If you haven't signed up to Economist Podcast Plus, there's still time. The half-price offer has been extended to the end of October. If you're a subscriber and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you'll need to link your Economist account to unlock all of our shows. Don't worry, it's really easy to do. Next week, we'll be publishing an extra mini episode alongside our regular episode. It's a short welcome to the world of Economist Podcast Plus. That preview episode will be locked. All you have to do is click on it and you'll be directed to enter your Economist account details to log in. Once you've done that, you're all set. You only need to do this once and all shows will be unlocked. You'll be free to follow any or all of our podcasts. Just sit back and enjoy. If you don't use Apple or Spotify, go to the FAQ page in the show notes for details of how to access Economist Podcast Plus on your preferred podcast app. If you're worried that you're going to forget all of this, by the way, then just look out for an email which covers everything I've just mentioned. Next week, we won't be putting our regular shows behind a paywall, so you'll be able to listen to next week's episodes without linking your account. But you will have to make sure you go through the linking process by Saturday 28th of October, when, starting with the first episode of our brilliant new show, The Weekend Intelligence, 
All of our weekly shows and special series will be behind a paywall. Remember, there's still time to get access to all of the shows on our award-winning network for half price. That's just $2, pounds or euros per month. Just go to the link in the show notes or Google Economist Podcast Plus to sign up. And now that you're part of the Babbage community, don't forget to email us all your burning questions on AI to inform our future content, but also maybe to get them answered in future shows. The address is podcasts at economist.com. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and Kanal Patel with mixing and sound design by James Stickland. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.